Amen. Thank you, Josh. What is up, church? That was good. Almost filled with excitement. Uh, So I'm pumped because Easter is right around the corner. We're going to gather on Good Friday, and we're going to have a chance to lean into, uh, before we get to the celebration, lean into the meaning of Easter. Uh, And then Sunday morning, we are going to celebrate. It's going to be off the hook, off the chain, whatever you want to say. It's going to be fire, whatever you want to say. Uh, Easter is the time when we get to come together and celebrate what Jesus has done, what Jesus is doing, and what Jesus will do. So prepare for Easter. Come jacked up, excited, ready to praise Jesus. Got it? All right, that was fairly convincing. Uh, We are in uh, chapter three of Jonah. Uh, Mitch was here last week, did an awesome job. Uh, Thank you, Mitch. Uh, You're not watching, but thank you anyway. Um, He's busy at Cedarbrook. So we are coming back into Jonah chapter three. And I don't know about you, but I've been hearing snippets from you guys about how the book of Jonah is impacting you is transforming you, is making you look at some things in your life, is, is reversing the direction you were going. And I can't tell you enough, that blesses me, that blesses us. It's the whole reason why we're here, right? It's the whole reason why I stand up here every day, every Sunday and preach, is so that we can hear from God, we can look at scriptures, we can pray, and we can ultimately be transformed by Jesus. No amens on that. All right. Jonah chapter three. A brief recap if you're new with us. Jonah is the prophet. God sees what's going on in Nineveh and hates it, doesn't like it. So God picks Jonah. He says, you're my boy. I want you to go and preach to Nineveh. Go and be the prophet. Go and call out their sin. Go and attempt to turn their hearts towards me, God. What's Jonah's response? No. No, I'm not going to do that, God. No. In fact, I'm going to go in the opposite direction. Like, there's all these things. Like, I hate the people of Nineveh. Like, they've massacred my people. Like, there are genuine reasons why I don't like them. And no, God, I'm not going to go and preach to the people that you're calling me to. I'm going to go in the opposite direction so I can run away. Anybody been there? Now, maybe you probably haven't been in in, in a as dramatic situation as this, but I'm willing to guess that we have all found ourselves in that place. Go talk to this person. Go love this person. Go forgive this person. Go minister to this person. Go serve this person, even though you hate them. Or, you know, we're in the Midwest, so we can soften the blow a little bit. You just don't like them. Right? And what happens when God calls you to that person? To those people? It's tough. 
So Jonah gets in the boat. He's on his way uh, away from the call that God has on his life, and a big storm comes. And then the, the sailors in the boat are freaking out because their ship is being tossed in the waves. There is legit uh, chance that they, their ship is going to break up in, in this and they are all going to die. And so they start praying to their different gods and that's not working. So they run downstairs and wake up the man of God who's sleeping in the bottom of the boat. Jonah, get up, Jonah. We're all going to die. It's interesting that the pagan has to go wake up the man of God to pray. The man of God is in the bottom of the boat, sleeping, ignoring everything that's going on, and it takes the people who don't believe in God to run down and go, hey, we need you, get up. We think you may have the answer to this. Get up, do something, engage, get active. I think there's a truth there, right? Sometimes it takes the non-Christians or the pagans in society to attempt to wake up the church because sometimes the church is sleeping or at least ignoring. And sometimes it takes the pagan to come and go, hey, church, where are you at? Like, I don't see you, and sometimes I see you, but it's causing more damage. So, church, where are you at? Please wake up. You are supposed to be the example. You are supposed to be the one who is praying, who is living this out, who is seeking God, who is making change and transformation happen through Jesus Christ, and you are sleeping. Sorry, going a little hard there. So turn with me to Jonah chapter 3. Jonah, this is the part of the story that we all probably recognize. Jonah uh, gets up from the bottom of the goes, hey, uh, I'd rather die. I'd rather die than follow what God is doing. And he forces the sailors to throw him overside. He's, I don't know, swimming in the ocean, and a giant fish comes up, grabs him. He's in there for three days. He prays this prayer of repentance which is interesting because it's not necessarily a prayer of like, God, you were right. It's like, it's, he's recognizing all these beautiful things. He gets vomited back up on shore. And then what happens? Jonah chapter 3. Jonah is vomited back on dry land. I'm assuming like Jonah washed himself off or I don't know what it's like to be vomited from a fish back on the shore, but I'm assuming there was some time here. And then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message that I give you. If you're not careful, you you missed what just happened. Did anybody catch it? The word came to Jonah a second time. This church should be the spot where we are praising, we are thankful 
for a faithful God who is continually pursuing you and I. Who doesn't give up because we didn't listen, we weren't obedient the first time, but keeps pursuing us, keeps knocking at our door, keeps finding ways to get the message across from us for us to turn our lives in focus and depend and have Jesus be the foundation. Because I'm willing to bet some of you in this room didn't feel like you listened to God the first time. Or you ran away the first time. And you're wondering, did I mess it up? Did I blow my chance? I turned away from God over the last two years. I've struggled. There's been a lot of things going on. And I've walked away from Jesus. And I don't know if he loves me anymore. And I think the resounding response throughout the entirety of Scripture is that we serve a God that is always pursuing, always coming back. From the beginning to the end, we serve a God who is coming again and again and again, who's knocking on the door, who's trying to break down walls, who's trying to get your attention, who's trying to love you, who's trying to show you grace and mercy. Sure, within that grace and mercy, he's going to correct you. He's going to bring you back, but he's trying to bring you back to him. And we have a choice of whether we're going to turn and come back to him or keep running. And praise God for the second time, for the third time, for the fourth time, for the fifth time, for the sixth time, that he keeps coming back. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time and told him, go proclaim the message that I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord, went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began going a day's journey into the city. So uh, this city, Nineveh, was approximately 120,000 people. So uh, what is that, two times the size of Eau Claire? Or double, double the size of Eau Claire. And he's starting on the west side, and he's starting to make his way through the city. He figures it's going to take three days to walk through the city. He's only at uh, the, the West Menards. And he's preaching a message. The Ninevites, uh, he says this, Jonah began going on a day's journey in the city, proclaiming, 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. The very next verse, verse 5. The Ninevites believed God. Who here would believe God after that sermon? That sermon in the Hebrew language is five words. And so it just makes you wonder, like, how on earth did Jonah show up on the scene and preach five words And the city changes. The city goes from not believing in God to believing in God. That's incredible. And I don't really know the answer. Uh, I was doing some research, and there is some evidence that in this time span, in this area, uh, 
they experience a solar eclipse. And uh, especially in the ancient days, when a solar eclipse happened, when any massive event happened naturally, the people would naturally think that the gods were angry. And so they would assign purpose, reason. We still do this today. Uh, but they assign purpose and reason for natural events happening. And they think the gods must be angry. So there may be a chance that a solar eclipse happened in the region. Like where Jonah was, they experienced that. And Jonah showed up on the scene not too long after that. And so he showed up to his city of Nineveh that were already questioning, there's famines, there's droughts, there's a solar eclipse. Gods must be angry at us. I wonder why. This is potentially the best explanation that I can come up with besides some supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. Why Jonah could roll up on the scene and preach five words and they would go, oh, all right, we believe in God. We're changing our lives. Because this lines up with this. This all makes sense. Jonah says, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. This word, overthrown. Uh, in Hebrew, it's the word hafak. Say it with me. Hafak. Be careful how you say that. Uh, it has two dual meanings. One means to overturn and destroy. That's this side. On this side, it means to change or transform. So depending on the context, depending on the situation, this word would be used to mean both of those things. This again shows why Maybe the Ninevites immediately were transformed. Because Jonah just didn't come on the scene and say, you're all being destroyed, that's it. He used a word that meant there's two options here. You can be destroyed or overturned, or you can change and be transformed. What option are you picking in life right now? Like if a prophet were to come to your life, say, hey, um, in 40 days, um, you are going to be hafak. You can overturn. You can keep going down the path you're going down and, and certain things will happen from that. Or... You can be changed and transformed right now. Which are you going down? Which would you choose if you were the people of Nineveh? The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed. All of them, from the greatest to the least, they put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king, probably the governor, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. What's happening here in the text? 
This is a response to God. This is what we call repentance. A turn. I'm no longer going this way. I am turning. There is a remarkable moment that I am marking out here in tradition, and I'm going to go that way. Sackcloth and ashes, sackcloth. I wanted to bring this stuff up on stage, but, uh, you know, just didn't have time to find a bunch of sackcloth and bring piles of dirt in here. But uh, sackcloth, uh, how many of you know what sackcloth is? Right? We use it for, like, Christmassy decorations. Sackcloth, if you were to put it on you, uh, back in this day and age, they would put it on themselves on their bare skin. And if you've ever handled sackcloth before, you know that it is itchy, it is not comfortable, it is brutal to have next to your skin. It only looks good like under a Christmas tree or on a shelf, neatly displayed. But they would do this in response to either something they were grieving or an acknowledgement of repentance. You see it all throughout the Old Testament. Sackcloth and ashes, they go together. The ashes represent that we are just dust. We're we're just dust. And it's from Genesis. But it's this response. This cultural response to grieving or to, to show repentance. I'm going to put on this sackcloth and make myself uncomfortable for a while. And I'm going to sit in the dust, in the dirt, to remind myself that I am just dust. It's really interesting, right? Culturally speaking, we don't have many ways that we communicate the state of our hearts and our minds, right? You can lose someone that's close to you. They can pass away, and you can go on life just like normal. At least it appears to everyone else. In this culture, you would have taken some time. In some areas of this culture, it could have been a year or more where you would put on sackcloth, sit in the dirt, Put ashes on your forehead like we do on Ash Wednesday in church tradition. And it would be a signal not only to yourself that you are grieving. It would be a signal to everybody else that you are grieving. It's almost like, hey, be be gentle with me. I'm going through some stuff right now. I just find that fascinating, right? But it's also interesting, there was a physical response to the repentance. It wasn't like, oh yeah, we've been going away from God, we've not been following God, now, okay, I'm going to say a prayer, I'm going to make a decision, and I'm going to follow Jesus now, and then I'm going to go to work Monday morning, and everything is going to look just the same as it did before in my life. It's like, no, I've, I've... changed. 
I've been transformed. I struggled with this. And I realized the weight of it. And that it was me doing something against God. And I've put on sackcloth and ashes to show myself, to remind myself, and to show everyone else that I am in a season of repenting. So many of these things we struggle to understand because they're so foreign to our culture. But I think if we had things like this, it would actually maybe make things easier for us. Because it's too easy for God to show up on Sunday and for you to be transformed and then for you to go upon your week as normal on Monday. So, the Ninevites say, I believe in God. There is a physical demonstration that they are going through this change in transformation. The king commands everyone and even flocks and herds not to eat anything, put on sackcloth and ashes, and sit in this moment. And then the king says to his people, let them give up their evil ways and their violence. And then he says, who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. It's so interesting because sometimes I feel like we've lost this in, in our world. This idea of God's judgment. And so often, I don't, at least for me, it's easy to rely on grace. It's easy to rely on mercy and go, well, I'm just going to keep going. And, and I think when we do that, we don't really understand the weight of what is happening. Because there is an invitation for us to turn away from what we were looking and going after and turn towards God. There is an invitation in two ways that we can go. We can be like Jonah, or we can be like the pagans. Throughout this whole story, there's this invitation. You can be like Jonah, or you can be like the pagans. Which way are you going to go? What choice are you going to make? There's there's a pastor named Brad Gray. He talks about repentance, and he says, it looks like this. Repentance means that you take responsibility. 
So there is a framework for repentance. When you realize something has gone wrong, maybe it's something that you've done intentionally or unintentionally. Maybe it's something that a group of people have done. He says, uh, Brad Gray says, there is uh, three steps that you really need to take in the, the journey of repentance. And the first is to take responsibility. Name it. Call it out. Acknowledge it. And when you do this, you own whatever it is that took place. You own it. If you ever had somebody hurt you, and then they came back and said, hey, I'm sorry you feel that way. Will you accept my apology? No! No! You just said it was my fault again! No, I'm not going to accept your apology. I'm sorry you feel that way. No! If you are going to apologize, if you are going to repent of something you said, something you did, then actually own it. Hey, I'm sorry I said this. I know that it hurt you. Take responsibility. Own it. I was in the wrong. It's on me. I know it wasn't right. And then you have to authentically demonstrate some sort of remorse. Some sort of feeling that shows that you actually get it. That you actually are sorry for whatever took place. This is what the sackcloth and ashes were about. It's a physical demonstration that I am sorry. I'm going to sit in this a while. It's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be itchy. I'm sitting in dirt. That is messy. I'm putting it all over myself. And I'm all signifying that I am just dust. There is an action that goes along. And it's called remorse. It's an authentic demonstration of you taking responsibility. You recognize where this went wrong and there's some sort of emotion and feeling that accompanies the responsibility that you are taking. It also emphasizes with those who you hurt. You are acknowledging the pain, acknowledging the hurt that the other side is feeling from your actions. And then there is a response. What are you going to do? You repented. You're remorseful. Now what? Now what? Because it's falling short if all you do is take responsibility and then you sit in this remorse and it's not followed up by any action. Think about it like this. We teach our kids this, don't we? I remember my kids were young. Uh, they'd be playing and playing with some friends or some toys, right? One kid would be playing with a toy. My kid would go over, take that toy from that kid, and start playing with it. That kid would be crying, right? He just took my toy. And my kid would be off playing with this toy. 
And what's our job as parents? Right? You, you don't sit there and go, yeah, good job. You took that toy. It's yours. If you found it, you get to keep it. Good job. No. What kind of horrible parent would do that? No, you, you sit your kid down. You get down. You get down at eye level. And you go, hey, buddy, look, they were playing with that. It's not okay that you went up and just took it from them. It's not okay that you did that. Do you understand that? You get them to accept responsibility for what they just did. And then what do you have them do? Go apologize. Go show that you are remorseful about what just took place. Go and apologize to them. And if they aren't sincere enough, like my kids, when brothers and sisters fight, they go up, yeah, I'm sorry. You go, no, 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 that didn't work. Come and mean it. Like, take responsibility. Acknowledge what happened here. And then, as a parent, you go, give the toy back. Until they're ready to let you play with it and give it to you, give it back. We know this, right? We know this with our kids. I think sometimes we need to learn this as adults. This is what repentance looks like. It's to take responsibility. It's to show remorse. And it's to have some sort of response that makes a difference. I think we need to learn this in our relationship with God and in our relationship with others. Do we want to be like the rebel prophet? Or do we want to be like the pagans? When God shows up on the scene. I think if church we took this seriously we took this seriously to become like the pagan Ninevites that repent, fully repent, and turn back to God, I think there would be more change and transformation that would take place in our world. So there's a question here. Who are you going to live like? Like Jonah? Or like the pagans in the story? The ones who aren't supposed to get it. The ones who aren't supposed to be doing the right thing. And then here's the other one that's a little more difficult and a little more like, oh, what do you need to repent from? What in your life do you need to repent from? 
And are you going to do it? Next week, we get into chapter 4, which leads us right into Easter. And next week, you'll realize why we're going through this book. As it ushers us into Easter. But I want us to sit with those two questions. Who are you going to live like? This is a question that comes up all throughout Scripture. And then what do you need to repent from? Maybe it's a hurt relationship. Maybe it's a habit that you've fallen into. Maybe it's anger that you've been harboring or unforgiveness. Maybe you did something to somebody or said something to somebody that hurt them. And you've been avoiding the fact that you actually need to go back and make this right. You need to go back and take responsibility. You need to go back and show remorse. And if you can't show remorse, you need to go get counseling so you can understand how to show remorse. And then you need to go back and take some action. Or maybe like uh, good church Christians, you're sitting there going, I don't have anything to repent from, but these people do. (laughs) Yeah, don't think like I don't know that's happening. Here's an, I got a list of 10 people that need to repent right now. First, start with you. Start with you. Take the plank out of your own eye, then you can worry about the dust in someone else's. And when you start to worry about the dust in someone else's while you're dealing with your own plank, can I suggest that you start with prayer? Because if Jonah can say five words that can transform a whole nation... Just imagine what Jesus can do going before you in any given situation. Let's pray. Jesus, we praise you. We love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the story of Jonah. And Jesus, I pray, Holy Spirit, I pray you work in our hearts. We invite you to work in our hearts to show us where, what, and how we need to repent. First and foremost, to come back to you. What are we putting in front of you? What are we chasing after instead of chasing after you? And Jesus, I pray you show us not only how to repent and come back to you, but how do we repent and bring reconciliation with our neighbors. In your name we pray. Amen.